Let's pray as we come to God's Word this morning. Our Father, we thank you for the Word that you've shown us today uh, in this book of Daniel. It instructs us how we might think about the times in which we live. also points us to the God who does dwell among flesh and came to us first, that we might go to you. Lord, give us insight into the Bible as we consider it. Give us wisdom. Uh, Lord, show us who you truly are and who Jesus truly is as we look at this this morning. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. I was chatting to a bloke last night at a wedding uh, that I was at, and we were just talking about general things. But he said that his grandmother was a devout Christian. And his grandmother, uh, one of the aspects of her faith was she believed in God as a devout Christian, but thought that God was more of an energy a sort of distant, a distant energy that you don't really know, but you sort of participate in various religious traditions in order to connect with. So it was more of kind of modern uh, Eastern spirituality. About 80 years ago it was when she formed those beliefs. Now, it was a very interesting uh, way of describing God and very interesting because it actually is one of the ways that God is described or Religion is described in our text today. What you'll find uh, in our text, in verse 11, it says this, this is just a snapshot of what uh, the Chaldeans said to the king. They said, The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. What's the prevailing idea? That the gods or God is distant. He's sort of Immaterial is someone who we can't really know that well and so we have to decipher, we need enchanters, we need religious people who can decipher who this God truly is. And they had all sorts of magicians and conjurers and soothsayers and the like who would determine from the stars and in other ways whom these God figures were and what they wanted them to do. And that was the prevailing thought at the time. But Daniel's God was different. Daniel's God was near. Daniel's God was different because Daniel's God dwelt amongst his people or he was supposed to. And that was the way that Israel was formed as a nation with God in their midst. God would appear to his people. God wanted his people to be near to them. And of course, when we get to the New Testament, we find that God is so willing to come near to us when we couldn't get to him He was willing to put on human flesh in order to do so. And so this morning, we're going to look at the nearness of God, which is very different to the system in which Babylon understood the gods to be in. The nearness of God. There's three aspects of that I want to share with you this morning. The first is our default position, which is the one that the people in Babylon were in, which is that God is distant. God is far away. And it's very difficult, albeit impossible, to reach with a close personal relationship. So our default position is that God is distant and ultimately unknowable. The second thing I want to share with you this morning is there is an uncomfortable reality to the God that Daniel worships and the God who we see in Jesus Christ in the New Testament, that he does two things. The uncomfortable reality is that he does two things constantly. He's disassembling our false beliefs and also always calling us to be nearer to Him. And the third thing that we're going to learn this morning is that God has a present power when He comes near to us. So, 
Let's start with the first. The default position of a distant God. Now, the king uh, in our text today makes a fairly impossible demand of his sort of plethora of wise men, enchanters, you know, these magicians who were, would have been one of the, in the ruling class in the king's royal court. These would have been people who would have advised the king on what he ought to do. Do you remember in the New Testament, there were these wise men that came from Babylon. They're called the Magi. And they were the ones that had seen in the stars that a new king was to arise. And they came to worship Jesus because he was this new king. But they came all the way from Babylon. Well, these same ideas were going on these 600 years or so earlier in the book of Daniel. People used to read the stars to work out what was going on in the world. They had all sorts of ways in which they would discover what was happening in the world. Soothsaying or the idea that you would look into the entrails of dead animals to work out what was happening in the world was a very common practice at the time. But the king, for some reason, didn't trust his enchanters and soothsayers and magicians. He didn't trust his court of advisors because he had a problem which the culture and the religion couldn't solve at the time. There was no ordinary means that could solve the king's troubling dream that he had. He knew that this was an issue that only true power could deal with. And the king for whatever reason, is very sceptical of the system of belief in the, in the culture in which he lives, which is really interesting. So the, the king's at the top and he still doesn't trust that these guys really know what's going on. He's looking for something greater, a greater power. He doesn't trust the cultural elites or the authority over the way things ought to be. He's sceptical. And so because of his skepticism, the king would only believe in a demonstration that, uh, sorry, he would only believe those that demonstrated true supernatural power, right? Because the king has this dream and, and he wants an interpretation, but he wants the people to show him both what the dream is first and then the interpretation. Now, I think anyone could come to you if you had a dream and if you explained the dream, interpret it for you. You know, they could give you all sorts of different ideas. We could say, well, this means that, and that means this. But to actually explain the dream itself in detail, nobody can read minds. And so this kind of power only comes from God alone. Even the magicians themselves acknowledge that. So the king Nebuchadnezzar is looking not just for conjuring and vague interpretations, but concrete facts and detailed insight into his problem. The problem is that this king is brutal. We know because the kings of Babylon tend to throw people to the lions. We know that the kings of Babylon, when you don't do what they want, they'll rip you to shreds, literally. And so Nebuchadnezzar is literally willing to kill off all his wise men and enchanters, all the advisors of the royal court, to which Daniel and his three friends are a part, if they cannot obey his command and solve his problem. But the enchanters know that their system of religion does not allow for this. Their system of religion is where God is distant. He doesn't give that kind of detail. Their gods are not concrete and real life for these particular problems. 
their gods need interpretations. They need uh, people who can discover things from the stars in vague ways and give meanings which are, you know, can uh, be enforced through their wisdom. Their God is not, and their relationship with their gods is not a personal face-to-face relationship, but a distant one of un- truly unknowable gods. And so it is put in verse 11 that only if a god were to come down in the flesh, then they could know the answer. Only this would happen. And they, they think that's absolutely impossible because the gods don't do that. Their dwelling is not with flesh. Gods are separate. Gods aren't really interested in humanity. We kind of annoy them, is the thought. We kind of annoy them, is the thought. Gods are distant, but Daniel's God is different. Now, ordinarily, I think even in today's age, most religions are designed to keep distance from God. Distance. And what, how do we see that? Well, we see that in temples. Temples are created. There's certain places where gods can be worshipped and places where they can't. We see that there must be a mediator between the gods themselves and the people. Often that's the priest. And the priest must perform particular rituals in order that the people might even get a vague audience with the god. Some religious texts are written in ancient languages, and so it's very difficult to understand them. You must learn those languages first in order to be able to explain what it is like to know that God or those gods. There are particular forms of worship and things you must do and washings and cleansings you must participate in in order to get close to this God or these gods. There's all these things created for distance, it seems. All these rituals you must go through to get there and even then you only get a little bit of time and a short amount of audience with these gods. There's all these distinctions between if you're clean and acceptable, you can come before the God. If you've done enough good works, if you've lived a good enough life, you might be acceptable to get a short audience with this distant God just for a little bit of time. But if you're unclean, well, no, you have no hope of getting an audience with these gods or this God. Now, I put to you that every system of religion on the planet has these sets of uh, barriers creating distance between the gods and humanity. Every religion except one. Every religion except one. I was listening to an interview with a guy called Tom Tilly uh, this week. Tom Tilly, you might know of him, uh, sort of a, an ex-Triple J uh, presenter from the ABC uh, radio station. And he's just written a book called Speaking in Tongues uh, because he grew up in a, a sort of fundamentalist, uh, as he describes as a fundamentalist Christian household. Uh, part of the, it was part of the revival uh, centres. And uh, one of the things that he was, is distinctive about the revival centres is that you have to speak in tongues, that is, speak a, an unknown language verbally, out loud, uh, as prayer towards God uh, in order to be verified as a true Christian. So that's, and there's revival centres around Adelaide today. We don't believe that. We don't believe the Bible teaches that. But that is what they teach. And Tom Tilly was a part of this. I grew up in it. His dad was a pastor in the movement. 
And growing up in this movement, he had a very particular idea of who God is. This is what he said. He viewed that God was a stern but good fatherly figure. A stern but good fatherly figure who, if you messed up, was always willing to deal out justice. Wasn't someone who was close and personal, but someone who was far off and distant, just waiting to see if you messed up, was probably good, but was more of a stern fatherly figure. His perception, uh, and this is in hindsight in his book, was that religion is something that really is centred around experience. And even the idea of speaking in tongues within, within this particular sect, the idea is that you must experience God in a particular way. And if you don't, you don't have access to God. So his idea was that everyone had to have this come to Jesus moment, which was actually just more of the spiritual experience of speaking in tongues itself. And if you made it, if you made it through and were able to deliver on that particular experience, you yourself would be on the right side of this distant fatherly figure who they knew as God. But you'd never really had this close personal relationship as far as he was concerned with God through faith in Christ. For Tom Tilly, it was about being on the right side, going to the right place, doing the right things with this vague distant God whom was stern and ready to judge you if you messed up. This is how he explains himself. He says, this is Tom Tilly, reflecting on his experience. I worked out what it truly meant to be a Christian, but I couldn't square the logic of the whole Bible, he says. I couldn't square away the creation story and all the key elements of the New Testament, like Jesus being the Son of God and humans being pre-programmed with original sin. It was too fantastical. The blurb on the book says this, Told with empathy and searing honesty, speaking in tongues is a powerful coming-of-age story about questioning the life created for you and building your true self one recycled brick at a time. There is this sense, prevailing thought in Australia today, that Christianity, and this is pretty much Tom Tilly's explanation, is what the prevailing thought in Australia today is that Christianity is an oppressive regime of a distant God trying to enforce his power upon people, if, if you believe it or not, of course. And that is utterly the opposite of what Christianity truly is according to the Bible. But Tom Tilly is right about one thing. Christianity cannot be squared away with the idea of an impersonal God. It doesn't work if there's an impersonal God. If there's, a per, if there's an impersonal God who's just trying to rule with a, a rule book over people but has no interest in deep personal relationships with us, then it doesn't make sense. And as many Australians are finding today, maybe some of you are feeling or thinking today, it could be irrelevant or just similar to other religions, just another path to get to this God that we're all looking for. But it may not answer the questions that you have the deeper questions of purpose and meaning in life, those existential questions. Now, this is, uh, I think, very on point for our time and place in Australia. But the principle that we see here in the book of Daniel, and the principle that particularly that we see in the New Testament as we focus on Jesus, is that Christianity is different because 
Every other religion has distance. Every other religion is trying to keep you away from God. And yet, if God was to truly come in the flesh, then it would break the system. It would break the system. We don't have a set of understanding for this outside of the Christian Bible. If God is willing to come face to face to us, if he is willing to be imminent rather than distant, if he does demonstrate supernatural power to answer the biggest, deepest, the, no, the most difficult questions of our time and lives, if he is able to do that, then we should actually be in the same boat as Nebuchadnezzar. We should listen to it. Because if the most powerful king in the age, uh, in 600 BC, in, in the known world at the time, it was the king of the biggest superpower that really the world had ever known by that time, if he was willing to listen to a God that could demonstrate that kind of supernatural power, who would come down into the flesh, who would really be near and amongst his people, then we should be willing to listen to it as well. And remember, Nebuchadnezzar does not believe in the God of Daniel. And yet if there is a demonstration of that kind of power, if it, their God would break the system, then, Dan, then Nebuchadnezzar might be willing to listen to it. So that is the default position in our culture and time that we, most of us in this country, and maybe some of us here too today, believe that God is distant and unknowable. We aren't close to him for various reasons, and yet he is calling us to know him. Secondly, there is an uncomfortable reality about God. There's two aspects to this. That God, the God of the Bible, the God of Daniel, the God we see in Jesus Christ is constantly disassembling our false belief, beliefs and always calling us nearer to him. He's constantly doing it. Uh, in the Old Testament, I think it's Genesis chapter 11 or so, there's this tower uh, that's called Babel, the Tower of Babel. And it was essentially humanity was united with one language at the time and one common purpose. And so humanity thought with you know, one common purpose and with one language that they didn't need God anymore and so that they could build a giant tower to demonstrate their excellence. To demonstrate their excellence. It's almost symbolic of a physical structure of humanity's grandness to replace their need for God. Rather than us needing God in any place, no, we'll build a tower so big that we almost get ourselves up to heaven. At least that was the thought at the time. The idea was that God could be superseded by humanity's greatness. Now, don't we have that kind of feeling today in our secular Western culture? That we've superseded our need for God. No, as Immanuel Kant said, God is dead. At least that's what the prevailing thought goes, because we act as if he doesn't care about us at all. The problem is, just like what happened in the Tower of Babel, is that God laughs at human endeavours to topple his throne. He laughs at us, Psalm 2 says, and he disturbs us by splitting our languages apart, by giving us disunity, by not allowing it to work out. So that just as St. Augustine put, we have a God-shaped hole in our hearts. And every time, like trying to put a square peg into a round hole, we keep pushing and it keeps not working. 
And if you examine your own life and if you examine world affairs at the moment, you will see humanity is trying time and time again to fix our issues by putting a square peg in a round hole and it doesn't work. God is in the business of disassembling our belief structures. Now, when you notice this from Nebuchadnezzar, and, and just oddly, by the way, the, the Tower of Babylon, uh, the Tower of Babel became Babylon. It was in the same place. So that same idea is present in this kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar rules over. But Nebuchadnezzar had got to the point where he'd seen things in his reign as king and he'd experienced things which he realised, particularly in this dream, he realised that he needed something else, some other power to answer it. And he was willing to put the might and the brutality of his kingdom to work to get this out of his wise men. Nebuchadnezzar knew that his dream was something that required true spiritual insight. And he uniquely had the power to demand this because of his brutality. You know, uh, in our time again today, we are in a bit of a mess when it comes to the cultural wars. You know, they talk about cancel culture, that those on particular sides of the political or social spectrum or progressive or conservative spectrum, depending on which way you look at it, are at enmity with one another. And, and is it producing good fruit in our society? I don't think we feel that way. I think more, we feel more disunified than ever before. Uh, journalist Stan Grant puts it this way. He says, this is just the latest. Cultural warriors on the right talk about freedom of speech and being silenced. Those on the left talk about hate, speech and safe spaces. In a world of cancel culture, each wants to cancel the other. What we don't do is disagree well. The media, with some exceptions, doesn't help. And so there's this feeling, a prevailing sentiment, at least in our day and age, a little bit like Nebuchadnezzar that we keep trying to work it out, but we're failing at it. For whatever reason, we're looking for answers, and maybe on a political spectrum, maybe on a social or cultural spectrum, and we're not finding them. Why is that? Maybe we're trying to put a square peg into a round hole. It just doesn't fit. Maybe like Nebuchadnezzar, we should be a bit more sceptical of our current day and age and look for something with true power or for someone with true power. Now, one of the fascinating things about our text today is that the Chaldeans, that is the, the wise men and the sort of group of influencers around the king, his advisors, get something right. Ordinarily, ordinary religion doesn't let us close to God. And that goes for ordinary, nominal Christianity as well. If you're a person here this morning listening to this who has gone to church out of a tradition, if you are here or if you're listening to this because you think it's the right thing to do, Maybe you grew up in the faith. Maybe you've just had an awareness of Christian things. Maybe you just think it's a good thing to go to church. Maybe your family was raised in the same way. You know, your parents were Christians. So, so you feel that you ought to continue the faith. But you don't have a close personal relationship with God. Then you're part of the trap of religion. 
Because the close personal relationship with God is the distinction of Christianity. It is that God is near, that He has come close in Jesus Christ, and that through faith in Him we do have access to God. But if you keep trying to work your way in to access to God in other ways, through doing good things, through being a good person, perhaps even that you've been baptised, perhaps that you've had your communion, perhaps you've lived a good life, you've been good to your family, you've messed up a few times, but on the most part it's pretty good. That is not enough. Because that doesn't change the distance created by you having an impersonal God that just does things for you when you want Him to. No, the true God is actually a bit more like a lion. The true God is fearsome. The true God is someone that when He is near to you, you know it. The true God that when He is near to you, you tremble and you quake because the holy God is in the presence of of his people. In the book of Isaiah chapter 6, what happens when he sees God? He falls down on his face. He cannot even look up. And he suddenly realizes the prophet Isaiah when he has a vision of the true person of God that he himself is tainted by sin. And the people he lives amongst are also tainted by sin. There is no way he can get close to this God unless this God takes away his sin himself. And so what we see in Nebuchadnezzar's scepticism points to, I think, three uncomfortable truths. First uncomfortable truth is this, is that we need God, but that he doesn't need us. We need God, but that he doesn't need us. Notice that God is not disturbed by a dream. You will never read the Bible and have God being disturbed by a dream. You know, Jesus, when he was uh, with his disciples in the New Testament, that they went out on a boat. Jesus goes to sleep on a cushion, it tells us in the text. There's this big storm picks up on the Lake of Galilee and the disciples are all afraid. that There's waves crashing over the boat. They're fearful that they're going to die. What's Jesus doing? Sleeping. Why? He's not afraid, is he? Sleeping like a baby, Jesus is, because he is not troubled by dreams like Nebuchadnezzar is. The most powerful man on earth at the time in, in, in the book of Daniel was Nebuchadnezzar and he was utterly troubled by a dream. Yet God is not troubled by dreams. The truth is that we need God but he doesn't need us and, yes, and yet there is an aspect of beauty to, the, to this uncomfortable truth. The aspect of beauty here is that if God doesn't need us but chooses us anyway, then it is the truest and the purest form of love. Think about this with me. If God doesn't really need us and yet chooses us anyway, there's nothing that he needs to receive from you or I. The Bible is, in fact, emphatically clear about this, that we utterly need God, but he doesn't need anything from us. And yet he still loves us and is willing to give himself for us and to invite us into a relationship with him. What is that but the purest form of love? Because you would know that in any human relationship that you have, there's a little bit of give and take, is there not? Even in maybe the purest form that we might have as a parent-child relationship, parents still want things from their children, don't they? They want good behaviour from their children, 
don't they? They want peace at night time from their children, don't they? Speaking as a parent with young children, maybe that's some of the things that I desire from my children. But also, as your children get older, what do you want? You want them to be successful. You want them to bring honour to you. You want to look to the next generation and go, I have done well with myself. Don't you? That's the way that we think about the next generation. So even in the pure, the, probably the best form that we have of a selfless relationship, there's still something that we give and something that we take. And yet with God, who doesn't need anything, he is willing to fully give of himself. And we see that in his son, Jesus Christ. It is the deepest and the truest and the purest kind of love, is that we need God, he doesn't need us, but he gives himself for us anyway. The second uncomfortable truth uh, we see is that we must overcome the fear of a personal and near God. Many of us think that if we're really to give ourselves, our lives over to God, and we kind of hold ourselves back a little bit, many of us think that if we're really going to give ourselves over to God, that he'll make us unhappy. That he'll start meddling with our lives. That if we really, are we really obedient to the Bible? If we're really obedient to this God and do what he wants, then we won't get what we really want which actually says we don't really trust him, which actually says we don't really know him. We have this fear that if we get really close to this God in Jesus Christ, if we get really close to him, then it won't work out that well for us. And yet the uncomfortable truth comes with a reality that if you really knew the God that you are fearful of, if you really knew the one that you think will meddle in your life or make you unhappy, you wouldn't think that at all. In fact, we see that, and particularly in people like Daniel, those that know God the best are the most at peace with themselves. They're the kinds of people that can face the lions, that can have a threat on their life and stand up tall. Someone like Daniel can answer with prudence and discretion. It says in verse 14 here, even when it's very clear that his life is on the line like everyone else's. Why? Because he's not afraid of God meddling in his life. He knows that he needs God for his life. There's a third uncomfortable truth about the reality of God is that God intentionally leaves our lives uncomfortable without him. The further you are away from God in your life, there will be things that constantly don't work for you. It'll constantly feel like you are trying to fit a square peg into a round hole in your life. Why? Because you are distant from God and God leaves it so in order that you would discover how it truly feels when you are satisfied by Him, when you find you're fit because you know your Maker. And so if you're finding life particularly uncomfortable, know this, that God is a good and wise father who cares for his children. If you're a Christian person, if you really believe in Jesus Christ and your life is particularly uncomfortable at the moment, know this, that God is using these circumstances in order that you might know him who raises the dead, in order that you might know him who has life after death, who works sweetness and patience and perseverance into those that are suffering. 
Know this, that God's own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, suffered and through suffering became perfect by being obedient to death. And he experienced a much greater glory by going through the uncomfortability of being in humanity and dying the worst of deaths, even death on a cross. Know this, that the more uncomfortable you are, the more Jesus is actually pulling you in, drawing you to him, that you might be more satisfied in him. Because, newsflash, we will all suffer and die. And yet there is an eternal weight of glory which cannot even be compared to our suffering on this side for what is to come. Let me finish. We've looked at the default position that everyone really, for the most part, in every religion, in every belief system, sees God as distant and ultimately unknowable. Secondly, we've seen that There is an uncomfortable reality to God that he is constantly allowing humanity to fail in putting up structures to avoid him. But he's also at the same time constantly drawing us near, pulling us in. But finally, there is a present power to a God who is near, a present power. In the uh, Disney uh, movie, Pinocchio, we find Pinocchio, and you know, he's the one with the, the nose grows as he lies. That's typically the way we think about him. But Pinocchio is a, a carved toy who is created by so a loving father figure, Geppetto. And there's this promise that uh, is made to Geppetto, the, the father figure of this carved image of a boy, this puppet that he makes, that he will become a real boy. He'll become a real boy, get this, if he proves himself to be brave, truthful, and unselfish. So Pinocchio's got a lot to live up to if he wants to become a real boy. Now, Pinocchio eventually heads off to school, sort of on the, in the process of becoming more fully human. But as you know, sometimes when your kids head off to school, they get led astray by their friends. And Pinocchio ends up in a traveling puppet show. Now, he sort of abandons his father and decides to get... Uh, connected with this puppet show, this travelling band of misfits. Uh, And the problem is that he starts to become less and less human the more he avoids his father. He doesn't have someone who loves him for who he is anymore. He only has people who love him for what he does for them. And it seems that although Pinocchio looks a little bit human, he's still not fully. He's constantly feeling like he's missing something. And now he spends his life searching for meaning and purpose. When he finds, he thinks he finds fame and fortune and meaning and purpose in this puppet show, he finds himself locked in a cage and trapped by the owner of this puppet show because this owner doesn't want him to leave because he's more interested in what he gets out of Pinocchio. As Pinocchio tries to get out of this situation, he lies and his nose continues to grow eventually uh trying to uh, eventually he does escape and he looks to a place called pleasure island with some other friends that he falls in with uh to make his you know his life satisfied to make him into a real boy and on this pleasure island he ends up gambling and drinking i didn't know that they did this in disney movies but apparently there's gambling drinking smoking all the things that you shouldn't do if you're a um little carved Uh, creature and he's on this pleasure island doing all this naughty stuff but what he doesn't realize is the more that he does these things the less human he becomes in fact 
he begins to turn into a donkey's ass. Like he turns into a donkey and part of his body begins to become totally unhuman. Turns into a donkey. Now, Pinocchio is utterly distraught at this, but is trapped on this island, has no idea what to do. And then suddenly he finds out that his father had come looking for him. Pinocchio's heart only changes when he realises that his father was full of mercy and grace and was willing to come to him when Pinocchio would not come to his senses and come back to his father. So Capetto, the father figure, upon learning where Pinocchio is, goes to this island, to Pleasure Island, in search for him. But on the way, he's eaten by this enormous and brutish whale called Monstro. Now, when, when Pinocchio learns that his father is even willing, get this, to die for him, Pinocchio's heart changes. Bravery sparks in his heart. His father, turns out, is still alive in the belly of this whale, is joined by Pinocchio, and they eventually escape and are reunited forever. And so what we find in the story of Pinocchio is that it is through love that Pinocchio experiences from his father through a close personal relationship and this fatherly love that he becomes truly human, who he is supposed to be, whom he was created to be. You see, when Pinocchio failed, when Pinocchio was trying to fill his life with other things, he actually fell in with people who only cared about him for what he could give them, not for who he is. But he knew someone who had a pure love for him, his father, though he had forsaken him. His creator had a pure love for him who made him and just delighted in who Pinocchio was because he made him. And yet it was only when Pinocchio realised that this father figure was willing to go even unto death for his sake that Pinocchio's heart was changed. And this is the present power of a near God. We have a God who, though humanity and all of us in various ways have abandoned him, we have a God who drew near to us despite our sin who came to humanity, God put on flesh, contrary to what the Chaldeans thought couldn't happen, God did. God put on flesh and came to us in the person of Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary. He lived an ordinary life for about 30 years. And then in ministry for about three years, demonstrated that he is the one that Nebuchadnezzar was looking for. The one who could truly step into humanity and answer our deepest questions of need, which is this God-shaped hole in our heart that we've constantly been trying to fill with a square peg put into a round hole and it hasn't worked. And God has allowed it not to work in order to save room for His Son. In order that we might know someone who would give even His own life for us, who made us so that it's only logical that when we're in right relationship with him, that we will be truly human and how we are supposed to be. This is the kind of God we see in Jesus. And so there is a present power to this near God because not only has he come to us and what we see almost foretold in this beginning of Uh, Daniel chapter 2, is revealed to us in Jesus. Not only has he come to us, but he has given himself for us. Not only has he given himself for us, but he invites us to turn to him. 
He invites us into relationship with him. No matter where you are in your life at the moment in relationship to God, God always is doing this work of making the ways that you are living distant from him fail in order to draw you closer to him and to know his goodness. God has your best interests at heart every time. And God is the great inviter of people to come and to turn to him. One of the great things that we see in Daniel, I want to finish with this, is that Daniel, through knowing God, is able to act upon his knowledge of God to bless other people. And that truly is the calling of those who believe in Jesus Christ here this morning who are part of this church. You know, like oxygen on a plane. If, if your plane is in trouble, you know, the oxygen mask drops out from above you, what are you told to do? To put on your own mask before you help others. And that is utterly true for Christians. Until you know this for yourself, the present power of a near God, you can't really help anyone because you have no oxygen yourself. And yet when you know the present power of a near God, it will utterly change you from the inside out. You will have something to share because you are breathing freely in the grace of a God who came to you when you didn't go to him. That is how Christians live a life, no matter what the system of government is, no matter how brutish those are above them, that is how the Christians can live a life with prudence and discretion because we know a God who fills our hearts with joy for all that he has done for us. Let me close in prayer. Our Father, we want to thank you that you have come to us in Jesus Christ. When we couldn't get to you, when it was clear, Lord God, that every other system of religion Lord, had kept uh, ourselves at a distance from you, Lord, you came to us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, uh, for the witness that we see in Daniel's life that calls us to a near relationship with you. Thank you that you have achieved that for us in Jesus. Lord God, we ask that you would transform us by the renewing of our minds, that we would live a life for Jesus' sake and for his glory and be like people filled with pure and fresh air in our lungs that we might breathe out your goodness to others in our lives and truly help others to know the nearness of you and the goodness you have revealed in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.